I've listened to Cheap Thrills by Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company for years. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Spin It, the record-ranking podcast for people like you who would rather be listening to music. Uh, I'm James, and with me is Connor. That's me. That's him. And this week, we're talking about Cheap Thrills by Janis Joplin and Big Brother and The Holding Company. We teased it a little bit at the end of last week's episode. And by teased, I mean we just told you. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happened. It was less of a tease and more of the real thing. But I'm excited. You know, we haven't done a lot of the big, uh, like, psychedelic rock, acid rock, late 60s. I'm sorry. You're sorry? I was looking at the Spinet Official rankings to check up on where Plastic Hearts was. And, uh... I saw one called The Mysterious Production of Eggs. Yeah, yeah, Mysterious Production of Eggs by Andrew Bird. And I just thought that was funny that the guy with the last name Bird had an album about eggs. I, you should look at the album cover of that. I'm looking at it right now and I don't know how to feel. <laughs> Is that a green sheep covered in a craft single? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's a sheep or not, but yeah, this is talk for another episode. Yeah, you're right. Save it for the Andrew Bird episode coming to the podcast eventually. I mean, we're doing everything, so we got to do it eventually. We got to do it eventually. Uh, But that's not Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin is the second member of the 27 Club that we've talked about. The first was Kurt Cobain way back in episode four, where we talked about Nevermind and Nirvana. Was that episode four? It was episode four. Oh my gosh. It's been a minute. But the 27 Club, for those of you who aren't aware, it's uh, a, a weirdly high number of artists that have passed away at 27, whether, you know, intentional or otherwise. And it just happened to a strange number of them, which is kind of what made it into a thing. Other members include Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison of The Doors. We'll be talking about Jim Morrison in a little bit. Hint, hint. Oh, that sounds like a factor spin hint. I'll take a peek at the mixtapers notes. <laughs> Either that or we're doing an episode on The Doors that I don't know about yet <laughs> hey welcome to spin it this is the episode within the episodes part of the podcast where we do a whole nother episode inside of the one we're currently doing right but anyway let me preface this by saying there's a lot to say about janice joplin so the proportions of this episode may be a little out of whack especially if we continue to talk about in the intro how wacky it's gonna be it's just gonna make it more wacky it is it's only gonna increase the whack <laughs> the- <laughs> increase the whack yeah so the point is there's a lot to say about janice joplin so we're probably gonna lean heavily on the about the artist section and then we'll get to the songs and talk about all of them but it'll kind of come when it gets here so you know just just beware so janice joplin was born in 1943 in port arthur texas have you ever been to port arthur never even been to texas wow we should go we should take a road trip we have a lot of spinner road trips we need to do I don't know if Texas should be the first one on the list. Not the first one, but it could be a part of a bigger. Spin it on, spin it on tour. Uh, we'll do, we'll do a podcast tour. <laughs> so Janice had a rough time as a kid in school. She got picked on a lot and kind of just generally started to see herself as an outcast. It's kind of sad. It is. It is. It's really sad. Don't bully people. Yeah, be nice. So during this time when she was feeling like an outcast, she started to get into a lot of blues musicians like Bessie Smith, Huddy Ledbetter, a.k.a. Leadbelly, uh, Ma Rainey, and a bunch of others. And they're really the people that inspired her to try and pursue music as a career. We're going to talk about Bessie Smith in a little bit, too. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Oh, okay. We're just foreshadowing everything. I guess I better get ready. Uh, her career as a singer kind of officially began sometime around 1962 when she was a college student at UT Austin. She ended up dropping out in 1963, uh, but she moved to San Francisco by hitchhiking, which is kind of a, a wild thing to think about nowadays, isn't it? And wouldn't you know, small world, 
she ended up catching a ride with the eventual manager of Big Brother and the Holding Company, who would be the one to recruit her into the band. So it's a good thing she made that trip. While she was in San Francisco, she collaborated with Yorma Kalkinen, who would soon become the guitarist for Jefferson Airplane, another really well-known psychedelic rock band. Right around this time, too, when she moved to San Francisco is when her drug use really started to increase. As you can guess, uh, with her being classified as an acid rocker, uh, she kind of got into certain psychedelic drugs, heroin speed and even meth and it really took a toll on her it tore her up and so she sought rehab to uh kind of try and avoid a lot of this for most of her career she was really like actively trying to stay away from drugs and stuff and she had relative success with it for a while which is right around when she found big brother and the holding company they were a bit of a hippie band and they were gaining a ton of traction in the hate ashbury community in san francisco well the members of the band um around the time that the janice joined you know they'd had a few in and out beforehand but the like classic lineup right the one that they're known for is janice joplin doing the lead vocals Sam Andrew was the guitar player and the singer. James Gurley played the guitar and the bass. Peter Albin played the bass and the guitar. And then Dave Getz was the drummer. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to interrupt you again. I already, I know we are, we're already uh, causing a bunch, you know, some whack increases uh, with, with our with our episode. But I've got to do it again. Sure. Well, let's just go wild. Yeah, we're just going real wild with it. I've looked a little more into the this mysterious production of birds, uh, craft singles, green sheets. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're back to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. We got to go back to it. I look, I need to know what the animal was. It's a very hairy green thing with weird toenails. Yeah, what'd you find out? I went looking for, uh, for what animal it was, and I found out that the, it was drawn by someone named Jay Ryan, who is a poster maker and rock musician who is noted for his squirrel posters. So I would like to reach out to Jay Ryan and get him to make some official spin it squirrel posters. <laughs> You can if you want. I won't stop you. That's that's a thing that if all the fans of the podcast could tweet at Jay Ryan, I don't even know if he's alive or what. I don't know how old he is, but if he is alive. The album is not very old. It came out in the early 2000s. In 2005, he published a book called 100 Posters, 134 Squirrels, A Decade of Hot Dogs, Large Mammals, and Independent Rock, The Handcrafted Art of Jay Ryan. Okay, it sounds like that's a thing. He appears to still be alive, so let's see if we can get him to do a squirrel poster for Spin It. That'd be great. Anyway, that's my that's my whack increase for the moment. All right, <laughs> let's keep the whack constant. Let's let's try and keep the whack steady for a while. So, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Janice joins the lineup in 1966, and the band really blows up, really takes off for their performance at the infamous 1967 Monterey Pop Festival. You know, the one where Jimi Hendrix lit his guitar on fire. Very, very, very famous. So, sadly, there's not a lot of surviving media of the band's performances at the Monterey Pop Festival. Uh, Most of it just hasn't withstood the test of time. But they released their first album later that year, and people really, really, really picked up on Janis Joplin, uh, kind of snubbing the rest of Big Brother and the Holding Company. So they often started to get billed as Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company, or Big Brother and the Holding Company, featuring Janis Joplin. And that caused a lot of tension in the band, because, you know, they're, they're all part of the same band, they all kind of wanted the spotlight, but it was really kind of Janis's show. I would have changed my name to Janis Joplin if I had been them. <laughs> the whole band? You want the whole band to be called Janis Joplin? <laughs> I mean, how funny would it be to be, uh, to be called uh, to be called that, right? To be called Big Brother and the Holding Company featuring Janis Joplin, and they were all named <laughs> Janis Joplin. Okay. I'll give you that. That'd be pretty funny, but also totally unfeasible. It'd be like, I'm Spartacus, right? No one knows which Janis Joplin is the one that, that's featured. That's the really good one. If you want to know, show up to the concert. Yeah, this is like that whole fake Fleetwood Mac thing. Anyway, um, so the time came to record their second album, this album, Cheap Thrills, in 1968. And the thing is, uh, you know, to talk about how they kind of fell behind and Janis got the spotlight. Big Brother and the Holding Company is not the best band, right? <laughs> They didn't get the spotlight because they may not have, like, deserved it as much. And that's fine, you know, it's part of the charm, and obviously they're still notable and famous regardless, but they weren't professional musicians in the traditional sense. And they were recording for this album, and, you know, there would be a lot of mistakes. They they did a lot of takes of things, and Janice would get really frustrated because 
she would do her part right the first and second and third and fourth, however many times she would nail it. And the rest of the band couldn't keep up. So they would start to get frustrated and and tensions would rise. And it was a whole mess while they were trying to record Cheap Thrills. But they got the album done. They went on tour anyway. And all that tension uh, did eventually lead to Janice officially leaving the band by 1969. Then they were Big Brother and the Holding Company not featuring Janice Joplin. <laughs> right, like they were meant to be the entire time. But she started focusing on her own solo career with a new backing band called the Cosmic Blues Band. And uh, that's Cosmic with a K-O-Z, if you were curious. Very 1969. I wasn't, but now I am. She also started to relapse back into drug use at this time, and it got really bad. At one point, it's reported that she was shooting $200 of heroin every single day, which is $1,532 today, adjusted for inflation. That's astronomical. And 14 cents. Yeah, and 14 cents. But yeah, so she really kind of started getting back into it. She did perform at Woodstock in 1969, uh, and the band had to be flown in by helicopter, right? Because Woodstock... I guess this is the first time we've talked about Woodstock. It is, isn't it? I think so. But Woodstock was, you know, the big hippie concert in 1969. It took place on a farm, and it was rainy and muddy, and there were a million people there. I mean, way more people than the event planners had expected. So a lot of it kind of got messy. But because of that... The bands kind of had to come and go by helicopter sometimes, and the set times were off. They were out of whack, kind of like our episode is today, right? So everything at Woodstock was just a mess. She didn't perform until 2 a.m. on Sunday of the festival. I'm going to take a page from The Price is Right here, and we're going to play a little game I like to call Guess That Dollar Amount. <laughs> we're taking a page from The Price is Right and playing Guess That Dollar Amount? Or not Guess That Price? Yeah, uh, I don't know any of the official names of the Price is Right games, but this feels like it should be a Price is Right game. Okay. Uh, guess how much it costs to get into Woodstock to listen to Janis Joplin that year. Oh, gosh. I have no idea what the price of a Woodstock ticket was. Are we talking like modern dollar amount or what it would have cost then? No, we're talking back then. What If you were alive in 1969, what would you have had to pay to listen to Janis Joplin sing at Woodstock? There were so many people. It would have been hard to ticket. I'm going to say 20 bucks. It was $8. $8? Which... Guess how much that is today? Oh gosh, uh, I I don't know. I I know I did it for the heroin fact, but I did it ahead of time and I had the squirrels help me, so I really don't know. Don't worry, I had the squirrels help me too. This was actually their idea. Of course it is, nerdy squirrels. That would be sixty one dollars and twenty nine cents today. Sixty one dollars for a ticket to Woodstock is literally the most reasonable thing in the world. Right, I know. That's I was surprisingly reasonable. Uh, but guess how much she was paid to perform? I don't want to take a stupid guess, but my guess is going to be stupid. I'm guessing she got paid uh, 200 bucks. She got paid $7,500. Yeah, see, that's why my guess was going to be stupid. That's a lot. Uh, and guess what that is today? $57,455.30. to perform at Woodstock. And and I just for the record, Woodstock is not a concert, like a single day event. It's a music festival. There were dozens, dozens of high budget artists that performed, including Jimi Hendrix. That concludes Guess That Dollar Amount. <laughs> Yay. For now. Oh, I don't like this game. It, it's, it's... Uh, it's a game I'm not good at. Unlike Factor Spin, where I kick butt every week. You used to not be good at that one, and you've gotten good at it. So after Woodstock, Janice had a little bit of a troubled road from that point on. The Sparknotes version is riddled with more drug use, more attempts to quit. She kind of started going internationally to try and run away from... A lot of the drug issues she was facing, she ended up in Brazil for a while. She went to her 10-year high school reunion, which didn't go great, but I think it's an interesting fact uh, for someone who was so acutely bullied in high school. I I mean, what a decision to kind of put yourself back in that environment. In late 1970, she started working on a lot of material that would eventually become the album Pearl, which was released posthumously in 1971. Uh, I debated whether I should listen to and we should talk about Cheap Thrills or Pearl. And I landed on Cheap Thrills mostly because, you know, it came out during her lifetime. It was an album that she had a hand in actually finalizing, which I like. And uh, it does feature what I would 
presume is her most famous song, although Me and Bobby McGee is also up there. And that's Peace of My Heart, which we'll get to. Fun fact, uh, her f- close friends called her Pearl. Yeah. That's why I got that name. And I, I guess it just feels like a fitting name, doesn't it? I mean, I, I will guess we'll get into the specifics of it, but like Janis Joplin was really just a diamond in the rough of, I mean, her amongst Big Brother and the Holding Company. I don't know, there's just something about the imagery of a Pearl being just inside of an unassuming clam but like being the most valuable thing i don't know i just uh i like that parallel a lot but the end of janice's story uh came on october 4th 1970 she was found dead in her hotel room from a heroin overdose which is suspected to be accidental not anything intentional and it really stunned the music world actually because Jimi hendrix had just passed away in a similar fashion 16 days before she did so i mean the two of them uh, if you want to call it joining the 27 club at the same time i guess might have been a part of what helped perpetuate the idea of the 27 club because people were like oh my gosh all these 27 year old musicians are just dying yeah it really kind of kick-started with their two deaths and so that's pretty much like the overview of janis joplin's career as a musician you know growing up and choosing music and where it took her. Let's get a little bit more in-depth about Cheap Thrills specifically as an album. It came out in 1968, and it's super, super, super steeped in blues and blues rock tradition, even though the band being from Haight-Ashbury, being more of a an acid rock type band, it also takes on a lot of those psychedelic rock influences. Uh, its full unofficial title is Sex Dope and Cheap Thrills, but that was a little bit too spicy for Columbia Records in 1968, so they shortened the title just to Cheap Thrills. Like we said, it was Janice's second and final album with Big Brother and the Holding Company, and she would record only two more studio albums as a solo artist. So it's not like she has an extensive body of work, but it's certainly a, a meaningful one in terms of like music history. Cheap Thrills topped the Billboard 200 charts, and it was at number one for eight non-consecutive weeks. It actually it got certified gold really, really quickly and sold over a million copies in the first month. People really were, you know, getting into Janis Joplin. And one of the things that's cool about this album, as you're listening to it, that you'll notice, is that they wanted it to sound like it was recorded live, uh, even though Ball and Chain was the only track actually played in front of a live audience. So they did a lot of neat little tricks, and they actually fooled a lot of people into thinking it was a live album with some of the things that they did. Now we are talking about some of the, the re-release live tracks, today as well but those weren't a part of the original album i just want to talk about the comparison between what they sound like when they're trying to sound live and then what they sound like when they actually are live so i thought that'd be a cool thing to include so anyway um with all that whack (laughs) out of the way we now return you to your regularly scheduled factor spin hey it's me the mixtape ah Hello, Mr. Mixtaper. How are you doing? Good, good. I I hear my roommate was trying to replace my game show with a different one, and I don't like that. Well, it wasn't really a replacement, just a little, like, spin-off. Ah, a spin-off. Yeah. In that case, I will spin it off into my rounds of factor spin occasionally as well. Okay. All right. Whatever that sentence was. Yeah. I'm curious to see how this goes. There's probably a lot to tell. A lot of really unexpected stories about Janis Joplin. I'm afraid, I don't know how much knowledge you have about Janis Joplin, so I'm also a little scared to see how this goes. It's true, she gets a little more, she's talked about more than some of the other artists that we've done, but that doesn't mean you haven't found the most off-the-wall things. But first of all, you said we're talking about, uh, what, Bessie Smith and Jim Morrison? I didn't say that. Did, Did my roommate spoil some of my things? Oh, sorry. Yeah, Connor said that. Connor may have taken a peek at your notes. Uh, I knew I shouldn't have made my password pumpernickel. Uh, yeah, I can't say that's a shocking development. But my first fact, she was once given a free coat. You're really coming up with some interesting facts lately. <laughs> yes, he is allergic to avocados. Yes, she received a coat. I just want to point out the avocado one got you, so... And it did, it did. And, uh, Hopefully this one will be a little more interesting to talk about than the avocados ended up being. Sure. Okay, so she got a free coat. Who gave her this coat? <clears throat> it was the company Southern Comfort. The company Southern Comfort. Okay, um, so Southern Comfort made a coat for Janice Joplin. Uh, no, they don't make coats. They don't make coats. 
Okay. What does Southern Comfort, the company, do? Southern Comfort is a whiskey brand. Oh, okay. Interesting. Did she drink a lot of whiskey? I'm going to tell you, she drank so much that that's why they gave her the coat, because of how much free advertising they got from her. Yeah, that I believe. Um, Was it a nice coat? It was a Lynx coat. Oh, that is nice. (laughs) Yes. Did she wear it a lot? Yes. She carried a Southern Comfort whiskey around with her everywhere. Like, if, if there's a photo of her with a bottle of alcohol in her hand, it's more than likely or not Southern Comfort whiskey. Like, that's how much she carried it around. And she even used a bottle of it to hit Jim Morrison over the head. Oh, she smashed Jim Morrison with a whiskey bottle? Yeah, she said it was the biggest waste of whiskey ever. What did he do? Uh, hit on her. Oh, she hit on him back. Yeah, she hit him back <laughs> with a <laughs> bottle of Southern Comfort whiskey. Not sponsored, but could be. Guess he didn't light her fire. Anyway, that's the Doors joke. Um, did he have any reaction to being smashed over the head by a bottle? Has he spoken about it? <clears throat> yeah, he said it made him want her more. Oh, that's... <laughs> yeah, he was infatuated with her, and that did only made her more attractive to him. I guess. Take a hint, dude. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. You know, I've been told she should have liked him. I've been told that girls don't like boys. Girls like cars and money. And Jim Morrison had all of that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good Charlotte dig. Anyway, um, so the fact is that she was given a coat for drinking a lot of whiskey. A lynx coat. Okay. I think that sounds true. I'm going to lock in fact. That's a true fact. All right. Could you imagine drinking so much of a beverage that they were just like, here, have a coat for all of your for all your free advertising? Yes. Yes, absolutely. What's that coat going to set them back? Realistically? Oh, here's a fun game. Let's play Guess That Dollar Amount. Uh-huh. Don't worry. We were just about to do that. <laughs> oh, I was going to do it to you. I was going to try and beat you to it. I don't know. She gets paid $7,000 for a concert appearance. Is it a $2,000 coat? So it... So I looked this up, and the average like full a full belly lynx coat that's real lynx it typically goes anywhere from thirty thousand to one hundred thousand dollars today. Ooh, that's that's a lot. So if we just take like a close average of like sixty thousand, that would be equivalent to seven thousand eight hundred thirty-two dollars and seventeen cents. Oh, almost the same amount that she got paid at Woodstock. Yeah, if it had been a hundred thousand, let's say they gave her like the bougiest coat that they could. That would be thirteen thousand fifty-three dollars and sixty-two cents. Okay, wow, that's an expensive coat. I can't Im- I can't imagine drinking so much that a company would go have this coat. I could see them doing it. Thirteen thousand dollars worth of coats, like <laughs> just have hundreds of them, but like the one nice one. Yeah, I think she would have liked that just as much, to be perfectly honest, from what I've read. She liked coats. Uh, just that she liked wild things like that. So, all right, fact number one out of the park. Fact number two: uh, she changed her will two days before she died. Oh, interesting. I don't know about this. Saying you knew about the coat. I didn't know about the coat, but it seems a little more trivial. This feels conspiracy theory-esque. It's not. (laughs) Oh. She added money to her will so that her friends could throw a party. Oh, just a clause. We'll just redirect some of the money to my friends. Specifically to throw a party. How much money did she allocate for this party? Ah, great question. That brings me to the next round of Guess That Dollar Amount. Why is that? I don't like the second game. I don't know. Uh, 7,000 seems to be a good number today. So I'm going to go with $7,000 back then. Not quite that amount, but uh, $2,500, which... Shoot, that was my guess for the coat. Oh, man. Which today in today's money would be equal to giving your friends $19,151.77 to throw a party. That's an awesome party. I know. There were stipulations. Yeah. What were the stipulations? Uh, the request allowed 200 people to have an all-night gathering at a place called the Lion's Share, which was her favorite bar. Okay. That, I guess, is a lot of money per person, even still. Okay, so my next question is, did they do it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And she was quoted as saying that the money was so, quote, my friends can get blasted after I'm gone. Sure. In fact, they partied so hard, hash brownies were unknowingly shared in her honor uh, as... Her friends and families mourned her by getting 
high and drunk. That's a hard party. Probably not as that. I don't know. Feels like more of a norm around hippies in 1970. But sure. So the timing is the next thing I've got to ask about. What led to her doing it? Coincidentally, two days before her death. Was there any specific event? I guess that's what the conspiracy theory could show up, right? Like that's what. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like maybe people could be like, oh, did she? I guess, did she do it so her friends could party? Which is clearly just bogus. I think it would just be more, is it not actually an accident? Was it planned? You know how you said it was pretty, it was ruled an accident? Uh, it it would make people question whether it was premeditated. But is any of what I said true? Ah, man, I think so, actually. I'm not, I'm not convinced that that would be fake. I think Janice, you know, seems like the kind of person who would keep her friends close and wouldn't want them to mourn her and would rather they just have a good time. And so I'm going to go ahead and say this is probably a fact. And what if I told you I got you on a technicality that it was more than two days before she died? How would that make you feel? That would make me mad because that wasn't the fact. (laughs) It was part of the fact. The fact was that she changed her will two days before she died. Yeah, and she did. And she did! This is a true fact! (laughs) (laughs) No no technicalities, no stipulations. I thought about it. I really thought about it. I I breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, Joplin was actually cremated as well, and her ashes were scattered over the Pacific Ocean in a private thing that only her parents and aunt were allowed to attend. Yes. Fact number three. Okay, fact number three. She bought a tombstone for her idol. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Is this where Bessie Smith comes into play? It is. Okay. Bessie Smith, for those of you playing along at home who might not know, uh, is a famous kind of blues rock singer known as the Empress of the Blues. Yeah. Uh, When did she pass away? Uh, 1937. And so did she die and just not have a headstone for as long as it took Janice to get one? Or did Janice just like buy an improved one, a bigger and better one. No, she, uh, Bessie Smith was buried in an unmarked grave for 30 years. Tragic. How much money did she spend on a headstone? And when did she like make this decision? Sorry, I'm asking a couple questions at once. When did she decide she wanted to commemorate Bessie in this way? And then, uh, how much did she spend? Jan- so Janice Joplin, you know, grew up listening to Bessie Smith, became her idol, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and it never sat right with her that she was buried in an unmarked grave. So what happened basically was um, the family couldn't afford a gravestone at the time that she died of a tragic car accident in 1937. And so that's why she was just buried without one. And that never sat right with Janice Joplin. And so she teamed up with a nurse from Philadelphia named Juanita Green, and they split the cost of the stone. Okay, and the cost of that stone was... Funny you should ask. Let's play another round of Guess That Dollar Amount. You're going to scare me away from asking about dollar amounts ever again. Okay, so 7,000 seems too high. We've broken the 7,000 streak with our last game about the uh, about the will. So uh, I'm going to say she probably spent, I don't know, $1,500. I'll be perfectly honest. I don't have a dollar amount for this one. Oh, fantastic. I, fr- I was frantically looking for it. I could not find a dollar amount. Good to know. Good to know. Um, but the average cost of a headstone today is between 1000 and 3000 And so if we just say $3,000, you know, back then would have been $391.61. Yeah, I was way off again. Uh, that's probably part of the problem is the conversion rate. Like 1500 is not a bad guess if it was today, but I don't know. I wasn't around in 1970. Uh, although she probably spent a little more because she had a personal epitaph written on the grave. Yeah, I figured she might have. And my next question was about to be what she put on the stone. It was an epitaph written by jazz historian John Heyman, who was a recording engineer with Columbia Studios who did a recording session with Bessie Smith back before she died. And so he it was somebody who actually knew her. And he had it say, The greatest blues singer in the world will never stop singing. Bessie Smith, 1895 to 1937. Well, that's, I guess, to the point. I like it. It's uh, the greatest blues singer in the world will never stop singing. That's, that's nice. It is. I think this, I'm going to lock in another fact. Another fact? I'm half tempted to say spin because I feel like you just know about Bessie Smith's grave and you've just said that Janice paid for it. Are you, You're half tempted, but not tempted enough to, to say that? You're locking in fact? No, I'm full tempted. You're right. You've said it and this time I'll flip. Oh, whoa. You almost never flip when I give you the option. I almost never flip, but I'm flipping back. I'm, fl- I'm rolling it back to a spin. I think this is fake. I talked myself out of it. And you talked yourself into a not perfect week because this is a fact. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's a shame. It just sounded too, I, as I was saying that it sounded believable that you had just 
looked up information about her headstone and then just like tacked Janice onto it, uh, I thought, I bet he did. And so that was my mistake. Got one more for you, though. Okay. As the, as the fans of the podcast would call it, Classic Four. Classic Four, <laughs> as we just started calling it, so now everyone will call it that. Uh, listen, I didn't say we didn't start it. I said that's what the fans call it. Did you know she had a psychedelic Porsche? I didn't. Um, what made it so psychedelic? Let's just say the paint job done on it was called the History of the Universe. I bet that looks cool, if it's real. When did she acquire said Porsche? This would have been uh, like 1964-ish. Nice. This is a time I will point out that a lot of rock stars were, it was all about having a cool car. Oh, yeah. And that was a big thing. And so that brings me to the next round of guess that dollar amount. Guess how much Joplin paid for her Porsche. I'll give you, so you'll probably want the information on the Porsche first. Well, yeah. Uh, this was a this was a Porsche that she bought stock and then had somebody paint psychedelic first off. So don't count the psychedelic paint job into your price. But it was a 1964 Porsche 356 C Cabriolet, and it was in she bought it in Dolphin Gray. Okay. Um. Probably. Gosh, I don't. I'm. I'm not sure. I don't know what cars went for back then. Going with. I'm sticking with my lucky sevens again. Yeah. Do we have like a like a range that I can be within and still count? Because the odds that it was seven thousand exactly. Sure. If you were close, but you're not. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> now seven thousand maybe is a better number for some of these other rock stars who were dulling out big money for their cars. But Joplin only paid three thousand five hundred dollars for hers, supposedly. Oh, I was half off. Uh, which would be in today's money twenty six thousand eight hundred twelve dollars and forty eight cents. Pretty honestly, not. I mean, pretty reasonable for a new car. Yeah. How much does she pay for the paint job? Don't make me play the game. <laughs> okay, I will make you pay, play the game. She paid one of her roadies named Dave Richards five hundred dollars. Oh wow, uh, dirt cheap. He was given a bumper to bumper canvas. And boy, did he use it. I guess so. I expect to see a picture of this if it's true. If it's true. He painted images of Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, California Landscapes, the Eye of God, Janice's Astrological Sign, which was Capricorn, a bunch of skulls, mushrooms, butterflies, and more, and put a final layer of clear coat that would prove to be a very wise move. Uh Uh-oh. Why is that? Because during a 1969 gig at the Winterland Ballroom, Joplin's Porsche was stolen. Oh. And when the thief realized whose car they had stolen, they were like, oh, crap, and began trying to spray paint over the mural to cover it up. Yeah. Okay, so here's, let me just say, you go, you don't have any details about this fact. When I have every detail about the fact and no details about the (laughs) real story that you haven't told me anything about. Tried to spray paint cover it up. The clear coat, I presume, prevented that from working effectively. Yeah. Well, that's not the only time the car has been uh, damaged due to paint-related incidents. (laughs) Yeah, one time a painter (laughs) hit it with a sledgehammer. (laughs) After Joplin's death, the car went to her manager, Albert Grossman, uh, who used it as a courtesy car on his estate for a couple of years before the car broke down and he gave it back to Joplin's family. That'd be cool. I mean, imagine showing up at a guy's house and he's like, yes, take a ride around my property in Janice Joplin's universe mobile. That'd be cool. Well, you see, uh, Janice's sibling, Michael uh, Joplin, decided he was going to use the car as his daily driving car. He lived in Ohio, fun fact. And uh, he decided um, to repaint it. I guess the Porsche was a very sought-after vehicle at the time, and so he decided to restore the car to its original beauty dolphin gray paint. You have to be kidding me. How would that make it worth more? So, So that's what he did. He returned it back to its original dolphin gray paint. Permanently? Permanent enough. In, this is 1975. It stayed that way for 15 years until in the 90s, they decided to reverse it back to its psychedelic glory. <laughs> <laughs> it was still under there, right? They didn't have to, like, recreate it. No. Here's the problem. Because, you know, 15 years had gone by, it, it became impossible to get the Dolphin Gray back up. Oh, no. And thus, they commissioned artists Jana Mitchell and Amber Owen to replicate it. The artists used over two dozen photographs to recreate the paint job. Wow, that's over 24 photos. My last f- 
fun fact about this supposed fact is that since then it's gone into several different museums. Its longest stretch was a 20 year stint in the rock and roll hall of fame museum in Cleveland, Ohio, which we have talked about before. Thank you, Billy Joel. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Billy Joel for putting Janis Joplin's car on the shores of Lake Erie for a long time. And we thought he was only into Cadillac acts. <laughs> he was into Porsche horses. <laughs> That's bad. Anyway, yeah. Carry on. In 2015, though, Joplin's heirs once again took possession of the car and decided to sell it at auction. And this is my final round of guess that dollar amount. How much do you think Janis Joplin's recreated History of the Universe mural car Porsche? Sold at auction. In 2015, you say? In 2015. So I don't have to do any more <laughs> inflation calculations in my head. Uh, I'm going to say uh, $1.75 million. I'm going to give that one to you because the correct answer is $1.76 million. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I figured the game. I told you I'd be better if it was in modern currency. I know. Which, back then, would have been $228,438.40. That's enough for, like, a lot of Southern Comfort Coats. Porsches to Lynx Coats, yeah. As we love units around here, that's how many Lynx Coats it would take to buy a Porsche. But is all of this true? All of this? Mm. I know, that's the thing. You've sprinkled a lot of things. A lot of details. I'm still going to say it's a fact, though. Uh, I'm decently confident that everything about this sounds legit. This is... Wait, if you... I fully, fully expect you to say all of it's true, except it's called the future of the universe instead of the history of the universe. You're wrong. Well, I was going to tell you that it's all true except the dolphin gray, but... You're kidding. That's the part that's... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. This is a true fact. Check this card. <laughs> it's all true. It was dolphin gray. Oh, that looks awesome. Can you imagine somebody wanting to paint over that and put it back to just gray? No, not at all. That's the recreation, unfortunately. I would love to it to have still been the original artwork. Yeah. Yeah, it's still fantastic in recreated form. Yeah, they did a really good job on it. Shout out to Jana or Jana Mitchell and Amber Owen. Yeah. That's fact this I went all facts this week. You did, and I... Almost had a perfect week, and I talked myself out of it. You psyched yourself out of it. I psychedelic myself out of it. All right, now enough out of you. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed another round of Factor Spin in our first ever round of Guess That Dollar Amount. <laughs> so many rounds of Guess That Dollar Amount. I'm cool if we never play that one again. That's enough from the mixtaper. I'll see you next week. Yeah. And, Connor, welcome back. Thank you for giving me a heads up on some of those... Mixtaper notes. Yeah, well, it didn't do any good on the Bessie Smith one. No, that's true. But it was nice to know it was coming. The Jim Morrison one I did not predict, because he was like just a side part of the fact. <laughs> yeah. He was just there to get hit in the head. Janis Joplin received a coat and smashed Jim Morrison over the head. <laughs> I like it. So let's talk album art on Cheap Thrills. It's one of the coolest album covers that we've discussed, I think. I don't know. It's not as cool as the Craft Single covered. Green sheep. We haven't even, t I mean, we've talked about it, but we haven't talked about it. So I don't know how much it really counts. The album cover, well, let's start at the beginning. The band's initial idea for the album artwork was a picture of them all naked in bed together. Obviously, another no-go for the record label in 1968. The album Sex, Dope, and Cheap Thrills uh, with the, the band Naked in Bed was not going to fly. So, instead, they picked the current cover, which was designed by cartoonist Robert Crumb. Janice was actually a pretty big fan of some of his other work on Underground Comics. Uh, if you're not familiar with the concept, Underground Comics are just comics that included certain banned content that wouldn't be in, like, your mainstream comic books, right? Characters would smoke and drink and portray all of these underground situations. So, Robert Crumb is a cartoonist. Janice loves his work, and the cover of the album now was actually meant to be the back cover until Janice laid eyes on it, loved it, and she insisted that it was put on the actual cover. I really like that it has like all the different song titles, you know? Yeah, and Robert Crumb even refused payment for the piece. Really? Mm -hmm. He didn't want to take any of Columbia Records' scum money. I guess he, he wasn't a fan. I, I, all right, then. 
he wasn't a fan of the label. But yeah, so the, the record is covered by what would normally be a back cover in comic book style, where each song gets its own little illustration. Which one has your favorite illustration? Um, I really like the turtle and the bowler hat. I, the, a bowler hat on a turtle just seems like a fit, like that fits in my head. I like that one. I like the absurdly long lips on the Oh Sweet Mary one. Yeah, yeah. it's a couple kissing, but they're really stretching for it. <laughs> yeah. And then I also really like the cannibal eating a heart in Piece of My Heart. Like, what a fun take on that one. It's a fun take, but I mean, imagine if that's how the song was represented now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's kind of grown. I think I'm going to give it to Turtle Bowler Hat. Yeah, that one. That one's for the song Turtle Blues, if you were curious. Uh, audience, it fits pretty well. Uh, my favorite isn't one of the uh, the song representations, I guess, but my favorite part is on the, the right-hand side where... They're talking about each band member has their own little shout out. And it's Janis Joplin just screaming into a microphone. <laughs> it says Janis Joplin vocal. Oh, I thought you were going to point out the Cyclops James Gurley with a halo. <laughs> That's also a standout panel. Yes. Oh my gosh. This reminds me of the one minion. This one, the one, one <laughs> minion only has one eye. The minion. James Gurley is the one, is the minion with the one eye. Maybe. Yeah, I can see it. So it's a cool album cover. Uh, I like it, but let's get into it. Let's talk about the songs. I don't know how much time we've got left in our whack format, but it was a significantly increased whack. <laughs> yeah. So the first song on the record is combination of the two and right right away you see all of their attempts to make it sound like a live album someone introduces the band there's crowd conversation there's screams there's a bunch of stuff that they add artificially to kind of make it feel live very cool atmosphere uh did we count the woes in this song (laughs) i didn't count them i didn't count them but i don't think they are gonna surpass stevie's 300 whatever yeah you're probably right what i love about it is the way that it starts with that little instrument the the guiro are you familiar i am not yeah it's the latin american percussion instrument it's like a little ribbed bit of wood or plastic it's like a gourd shape and you just rub a stick across it and it makes that little like sound oh yes i i know what you're talking about yeah that's a guiro (laughs) this is a different kind of song than we've usually seen and i mean it's a different kind of album different kind of band different everything to be honest this uh the band kind of just jams for most of this album it's really a long form jam session and i really love that about it and there are times you know this is one of the two songs on the record where janice doesn't always take the lead vocal but i don't know maybe it's just because i know her and i'm listening for her voice but even when she's not singing the lead even when she's just on some of these harmonies i feel like she's still very clearly the standout member of the band like she's what catches my ear first and most prominently i don't know if it was just because i knew we were doing this episode and so i was especially listening for her but i also felt she stood out she's just got such a voice i mean she could belt it very effectively at one point this song makes a reference to the avalon ballroom which was a really short-lived but super important music venue in san francisco it operated from 66 to 69 and it hosted all kinds of bands that were really emblematic of this counterculture movement like the grateful dead moby grape uh beat poet Allen ginsberg and much more so the combination of the two in the title is a reference to two of the city's biggest and most important rock ballrooms including this, the Avalon, and the Fillmore. So, yeah, now you know. And I really like the guitars in this. I mean, I know I said Big Brother wasn't and isn't the the best band, but they really can can bring it when they want to. It's pretty raw. You know, the the guitar solos were really, like, fast and free-flowing. I think they just did a good job with them, at least on the first track. The second song is I Need a Man to Love. That's the first one where Janice gets the lead, and it slows things down, I mean, considerably. Yes, it does. You know me, I'm the ballad guy. Does this count as a ballad? I guess it is. It's uh. It's as about as ballady as you're gonna get. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. But no, I don't. I didn't really. Uh, this one. It's another one of those ones where it just didn't do it for me, even though I'm the ballad guy. Interesting. I think this is maybe the best spot on the album where we get to see how well she can control her vocal, even at a low volume. Yeah, she can. She's really good at like her technical skill. When it comes to singing is very high yeah she can use her she can manipulate her voice very effectively and accurately i mean you can hear it in her vibrato in her like screaming in just everything everything she does in this song just like accentuates how good of a singer she is because she you know she can adapt to fit whatever the song requires uh guitarist sam andrew 
called this song Janice's mission statement after she had a really tough breakup the year before in 1967. So she really put a personal twist on it. I need a man to love. Won't you let me hold you dear? Just put my arms around you like the circles going round the sun. Lyrically, uh, there's some really interesting lines in there too. I don't know. I think they just do a great job uh, at building all the tension on the pre-choruses and walking the pitch up into it. That's really cool. On the, you know, the can't be, can't be, can't be. I like that a lot. I just like this song. It's not a traditional ballad. It goes on for, you know, some time. Like I said, the whole album kind of feels like a long jam session, but it's a good one. Yeah, a lot of these songs are longer. Yeah, a lot of them. I mean, combination of the two is almost six minutes long. Uh, This track was almost five minutes. The longest is track seven, Ball and Chain, and it's nine and a half minutes long. They really just kind of let go, and I like that. They give themselves room to, like, just let the song breathe. The next song I like a lot, too. Uh, It's way more laid back and casual, even than the first two. It shows a whole different side of the band, and I guess in a larger sense, it shows this whole other side to the genre of blues. I, I like Summertime. It was the first one that I felt like I really clicked with, Uh huh. which is weird because I felt like I Need a Man to Love had the more complex lyrics. Yeah. And, was, and felt like, it was like, if you took like the lyrical capability of the previous song and put it on the sound of this one, it would have been a fast favorite. They didn't do that. No, and that's because Summertime is the first of the album's three covers. Oh. the Yeah. So, like, Janice put her heart and soul into her, you know, her defining moment, her mission statement of I Need a Man to Love. Summertime is classic by George and Ira Gershwin, and the lyrics are by DeBose Hayward. It was originally written for an opera called Porgy and Bess. Interesting. It is interesting. So lyrically, this one definitely does not land the same. And it, it kind of comes across maybe not as personal because it's just not. But that doesn't make it any less good. I uh, I really love the, the part at the end too where she gets into the no, 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 no. I really love that. All the no, no, no's. That's because she just is able to like use her voice like an instrument. But summertime ends and we get into, I mean, the pinnacle, the pinnacle of Janis Joplin right a classic piece of my heart like you said probably one of their most popular songs it certainly is and uh you know it's interesting because it's the second cover on the album not a Janis original interesting yep yep and it's not the first time we've talked about that right we had the same thing with Joan Jett where she covered I Love Rock and Roll yeah but it kind of just became known as theirs (laughs) yeah and so big brother and the holding company janice joplin they really took ownership of peace of my heart the original is by irma franklin sister of the famous and well-respected aretha franklin it's a small world after all (laughs) that song is unrelated but the sentiment yes now i'm gonna guess you knew this song going into the album yes yeah i was gonna say come on come on come on come on tell me the truth (laughs) uh this is, I think, the only song I knew. Um, I'm honestly not surprised at all by that. This is the song from the album, right? The rest are cool and, and good, but when you look at stuff that Janis Joplin's like, known, I, a lot of people are going to point to stuff on Pearl, right? Because the shock of her just passing away unexpectedly, that being the first album, I mean, that one really, like, that's the one that solidified her place in history in a lot of ways. So Cheap Thrills kind of gets pushed aside sometimes. But Peace of My Heart stuck around. But as far as Peace of My Heart goes, it peaked at number 12 on the charts. Uh, And here's a fun fact. They were getting ready to make a biopic about Janis Joplin, right? A documentary movie, uh, but like dramatized. And it was going to happen. They were doing it in the 90s. And if you're going to make the movie, you absolutely have to include this song, right? Super important. Cornerstone song for the movie. It never got made, but... The film company was going to have to pay a record-breaking million dollars just to use this song. Oh, shoot. I should have made you play the game. Dang it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's my fun fact. A million dollars just to use this song. We can play it now. No, it's too late. The moment's gone. (laughs) You sure? Yeah. I think I do pretty well. Anyway, uh, the next song is the one that made it into your top album cover artwork turtle blues yes turtle blues and uh this is where we as a podcast welcome back the 12 bar blues format hey welcome back we talked about it before with hank williams and joan jett 
and I think maybe once or twice uh, apart from them. It's basically the chord progression goes from the one chord to the four chord to the one chord to the five to the four to the one over the course of 12 bars of music. I mean, 12-bar blues is really native to the blues. And as we'll see, it's just such a staple of the genre. Uh, A lot of people used it in the day, and a lot of people still use it, even now. I mean, we've talked about how even U2 has songs that are written in 12-bar blues format. Yeah. Uh, Turtle Blues, as the name kind of implies, is a song about being super defensive and closed off to the world uh, so you can protect yourself from other people. You don't have to be vulnerable. You just turtle yourself away right up into that shell right up into the shell into the bowler hat and this is a a real another personal track for janice because she would sometimes get really self-conscious or like have problems with being vulnerable which i guess just comes with the territory of growing up being picked on that that might be a thing you'd be more inclined to do is just keep to yourself uh but she would get upset when she would see people talk or laugh or like not pay attention to these lyrics because she thought that they were missing the point that all these heartfelt words that she was singing at them just weren't landing. And she took that kind of rough. This is one, I think, where they really lean into that live sound, right? Uh, It's like it's at a chill nightclub, like a dinner club, right? There's people kind of chattering. They have that breaking glass sound in the middle, and uh, someone comes by and sweeps it up. (laughs) Like, uh, it's got got like a very smoky bar vibe, I guess, is kind of how I felt listening to it. It's one of the ones that plays off the live sound the best absolutely yeah which is easy to do in uh the classic 12 bar style right it feels like the way it's meant to be listened to is live like that actually i don't know if you caught this uh one of the lyrics she says i'm gonna take good care of janice that's actually a subtle reference to the fact that her name is janice (laughs) the next track is another one that you pointed out on the album cover. Oh, Sweet Mary. This one, to me, felt like a real classic acid rock track. Kind of like Jefferson Airplane, the Mamas and the Papas vibes. It's songs like this that really make me feel like, yeah, to classify them as acid rock versus blues. And part of it, I think, comes from the drums, right? It's, uh, It's a really driven drum beat. And, I mean, lyrically, it also fits right in there. Sweet Mary, child of confusion, runs to the hills to cry. Uh, You know, talking about illusions and breathing in the air. Yeah, another lyrical highlight. Yeah, and, I mean, it ends with this weird rhythmic hop now, hop now, hop now part that really does, I guess it makes the whole song feel trippy. I like Oh Sweet Mary. I don't know where I'd put it if I were putting all these tracks in a rankable order, but it's definitely respectable. I think it's a nice deviation from... A lot of the pieces of their style that we've seen in the past, it's kind of a an extra little side of the Big Brother and the Holding Company coin. What'd you think of the next song, Ball and Chain? Very long. Very long. Yeah, this is the nine and a half minute cut. Uh, it's another cover, the you know third and final cover from the studio album. It The original is by Big Mama Thornton. A really, really, really famous, influential rocker uh, from the early days. Have you heard the name Big Mama Thornton? Don't believe so. She wrote and performed Hound Dog. Oh! Yeah, she's the originator of that and a lot of other rock and roll, like early rock and roll songs, uh, before they made it to their more famous versions, like Elvis's. Big Mama Thornton is the way to go. This song, uh, not this recording of it, I don't believe, but this song was one of the recordings that did survive the Monterey Pop Festival performance. The crowd loved the band's first set so much that they actually had to come out and do a second full set, which is what got filmed, and their performance of Ball and Chain made it onto that second cut. Gotcha. What I will say, too, is there's just, as a guitar player, there's something about the style of acid rock lead guitar that I am so drawn to right? It's really heavy fuzz, really like tuned down high end. It's all in the mid range. And it's just so kind of, I guess, aggressive in your face, but also so like chill, you know, it's, uh, it's very emblematic of the era and the movement that it represents. I really like the guitar on this one. Yeah, me too. I think, you know, this is a long song, but because of that guitar and a lot of the other factors, it's just so easy to get wrapped up in for me anyway, because It just doesn't command your full focus on anything except for the music. You know, uh, the lyrics are there, but they're not the focal point. Even the vocals themselves just have this indistinct musicality about them, right? They kind of become more a part of the ambiance than, 
necessarily a storytelling device in a lot of cases. There's uh, there's also a part somewhere around the eighth minute that's just Janice's vocals alone, and that's so unbelievable to me that like she's so good even on her own like that. Oh, gee, she's a she's a master at controlling her voice. It's true. It's so true. Ball and Chain is the last track from the original studio album's release. So that was what you'd hear on a record. Everything else is from a re-release or, you know, a later special edition. And I think most of it was just cut due to time's sake. But the first song that got cut that's on, you know, the re-release versions is Roadblock. Yeah. Yeah, Roadblock is another favorite of mine, just for how upbeat and fun it is. Yes, it's it stands out in that regard. Yeah, I can tell that they had a lot of fun recording it. It really shines through. Roadblock, a lot of the background guitar work is cool. A lot of the guitar fills in between when they're chanting Roadblock, that catches my ear every single time, and it's always great. Roadblock was one that perked me up as soon as I started listening to it. Yeah. And the next track, Flower in the Sun, is really, like, sneakily fun. I like a lot of the musical decisions that they make on the verses. I think from a from a musicality standpoint, it's one of the better songs in this collection of 11. It didn't really stand out to me too much. That's why I said it's sneakily interesting. Fair enough. There aren't really any big sweeping guitar parts, though. There's no big moments, uh, not as many anyway. It's another one uh, that kind of stands out on the album, like, in terms of the sound. Again, but I guess that's what you get when it's one that wasn't originally there. Yeah, it was another studio outtake. Yeah, so, you know, maybe that... Gives them a pass on not sounding as cohesive. Yeah, I think it does. I think it has to. But I just, I just think this song does a really good job at using its like dominant sevenths to, to be music nerdy for a second. That's kind of what sets it apart for me. There's a lot of big moments with those. But then we get into the last two tracks, which are the only two live tracks, even like on the, the re-releases, right? The first one's called Catch Me Daddy. The live tra- sound really highlights how not live some of the other ones sound. Do you think? I honestly thought that they were remarkably similar. I mean, think of how many... Like, Roadblock did a good job of sounding like a normal song, right? And so that highlighted how live the previous one sounded. Yeah. But then you hit these ones, and you're like, I don't know, there was something about them that kind of made the other ones feel cheaper. They're certainly less polished. Like I mentioned, the the Big Brother and the Holding Company as a band. (laughs) Not the greatest band. (laughs) A lot of the polish has gone off these last two tracks. They actually were recorded in Detroit in March of 1968, which makes them 54 years old this week. Happy anniversary. Happy, yeah, or birthday. Happy birthday. We'll get you a SpongeBob-themed cake. Don't eat it all at once. Um, I, I don't know. I really think it's about the same as the studio songs, to be honest. I mean, I guess some of the live sounds sound fake. Some of the crowd noises, the glasses breaking and stuff, sound inserted. It's a classic one of those things, right, that I've complained about in the past where I don't like that kind of stuff in my songs. In the ones where they artificially added it, it was a little off at times. But like the, these ones that are actually live, I feel like they work out. Yeah, that's true. Catch Me Daddy has its problems, I think, but The Magic of Love is one that I think is super well-constructed, and the execution is honestly pretty flawless, especially given that it's live. Yeah, I really like Magic of Love. Me too. I think it's a good way to close, I guess, this extended album, because I, I believe it was their final performance of the night right when they recorded live in Detroit. And it even ends with the uh, announcer at the venue coming out and saying, thanks for coming. You know, here's who's coming up next. Come back. I wasn't sure if that was artificially added in, even though this was a live performance or not, because they started it with an introduction. So I wasn't sure if they artificially added in the goodbye. I can't say with 100% certainty, but what I will say is since this wasn't on the original studio album, I feel like it's legit. If it had been at the end of Ball and Chain, maybe. Uh, I would be more inclined to think that it was definitely just tacked on to to make the album seem more full circle. Of course, the people who released this version of it could have wanted to make it the full circle. They could have, and it, I guess it's certainly possible. Yeah, I just wasn't sure. That's a good question. Hey, any Janis Joplin super fans out there, if you've made it this far into the podcast, uh, let us know if you know anything about that. Because I guess now I'm curious. I've never even given it a second glance before, but now that you mention it, maybe that was extra for uh, added effect. But uh, with all that said and done, with all 11 tracks out of the way, guess it's time to keep spinning into Final Spin. It's Final Spin time! I'm excited to hear your, your scores. I am excited to hear yours. You indicated before we started recording that you did not know where this would end up. 
And so I similarly do not know how this will end up for you. Because <laughs> it is, it's a very different kind of album. It, you know, I consider Cheap Thrills more of an album as a whole than I consider its songs, like pieces of it. You know, with the exception of Peace of My Heart, a lot of these songs work much better in the context of the album, in, you know, in this collection. Either that or I have to be, like, in the right mood. You know what I mean? They're not all the time songs. I think, as far as the playlist goes, I'm gonna take Peace of My Heart to force you to pick which other one goes. Okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. As far as scoring goes, I think this album does a lot of things right. I think this album has a couple of misses. It's tough, right? You gotta remember in scoring this that we've Gotta separate Big Brother and the Holding Company and Janis Joplin from the album a little bit. Yeah, they're iconic players in music history, but this album, as it stands, uh, is it's an interesting piece of work. I think musically, there are a lot of cool decisions, right? A lot of fun blues tropes, the dominant sevenths, a lot of the diminished chords, the 12-bar blues is integrated only once or twice here, which I think works really well. Uh, I think the jamming is fun. I think a lot of these jam songs are really, really cool, but a lot of them do kind of feel like they start to drag a little bit, maybe, and they kind of run together if you're not actively listening to each one, which isn't necessarily a problem. But I also, I consider that jam format way more more product of like instrumentation right everything that they improvise all these fun guitar solos and stuff i think for me that falls less under music and more under instruments so music is getting an 82 lyrically i think this album it's not meant to be a super lyrically dense album right you you take the songs that are big like uh, i need a man to love like peace of my heart so some of these other songs that are meant to be more personal and emotional, and they're really strong. Uh, some of them are covers. Some of them, like Roadblock, <laughs> just don't have much to say at all in particular, right? It's just a fun, upbeat song. Lyrics, uh, I think, balance out to an 80 for me. Instruments and production is a, a place that I think this album is really strong. Uh, the concept to try actively to make it sound like a live record when it's not is kind of playing to your strengths, right? If I'm Big Brother and the Holding Company and I know we're no A-plus band out there, making it sound like a live album really kind of adds charm to your mistakes and the ways that you, I don't know, maybe aren't the best. You're really leaning into that, and I think it succeeds. I think it makes the album better. Their guitar solos are awesome. Their tones are great. And uh, for the most part, I think this album still stands up. Like, it holds, it withstands the test of time despite being from... 68. So I'm given instruments and production an 87. Uh, and the overall vibe, I just like this album. It's one that you can get lost in. You know, you, you drop the needle and let it roll. I think Janice is, is great as a vocalist. She, it's pretty clear she puts her whole heart and soul into every one of these songs that she sings. She's like actually feeling it. She's not just going through the motions, right? There's a lot of passion there. Uh, and it just kind of makes me feel good about the album, the vibe throughout. I'm giving it an 87. And the squirrels say that is? Well, they'll get the bonus point since only three songs were covers. The squirrels are telling me it's an 83.9. Which puts it? Number 236. More than top 50%. I'm curious to your part of it now. Uh, let's Let's put an end to the enigma. Tell me what you thought. Be brutally honest. Let's just jump right into the top three. How about that? Sure. Yeah, start at your top three, your honorable mention, and your playlist pick. In album order, Peace of My Heart, Ball and Chain, honorable mention goes to Roadblock, and the final top three is Magic of Love. Okay. For my pick for the for the playlist, it's either got to be Ball and Chain or Magic of Love. I think I'm gonna pick Ball and Chain. Ball and Chain. I think that's a good choice. I think, uh, you know, the other one's good, but Ball and Chain is way more emblematic of what this album's kind of all about. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good good pick. Uh, there's a lot of great guitar riffs. Uh, as I've said multiple times, Janis Joplin, very good at controlling her voice. Really just wowing the uh the listener with what she's capable of right uh and so for a score we're gonna play another round of guess that number <laughs> no no that's a different game it's normally guess that dollar amount it's a pretty clunky game show name we need the marketing department to come up with better <laughs> branding 
<laughs> yeah. This one is getting a four. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> this one gets Way a down there. four. Uh, I have to ask. Okay, I have to ask. Above or below America? Uh, below. This is my new least favorite. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, this one's going to get a four. And so what you'll notice along the way as we did our analysis, I kept it very technical. I think we can officially say on the podcast, I do not care for the genre acid rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess not. <laughs> I'm a big rock fan. I did not care for the vibe of this album really at all. This was a struggle to listen to. Uh, here's the thing, though. I'm a little scared. To put it a four now, because you mentioned as you started your final spin that sometimes you just have to be in the mood to listen to it. It's not an all the time album. Yeah, it's not. That's got me scared that I just wasn't in the mood for it, apparently. But I'm not. I, I the, the guitar rhythms were were good. I just saw the whole the whole vibe of the album was off. The way Janis Joplin sings, while technically impressive, I just didn't care for it. Still better than Kanye. We should we should point out <laughs> right yeah misscored mis misrepresented my beautiful dark twisted fantasy yes always will be my bottom but in terms of ranking this is my new lowest scored album and for a unit i think i'm gonna give this one four whack increases out of ten four increased <laughs> wax <laughs> yeah uh, you know this was a wacky episode this is a wacky album or whack increases from me. It's different. It's different. And, uh, okay, I'm not surprised. I guess I'm a little bummed. But, yeah, honestly, the thing is with uh, this this era of rock, right, this style of rock, the the Jimi Hendrix, the Jefferson Airplanes, the it's, it's its own thing. And if you can't, if you're not into it, if you're not, you know, if you haven't burst that bubble yet, it, it's an acquired taste maybe. If we looking at comparing it to something else we've done, uh, it's actually probably most similar to apoptosis um, in terms of its style, right? I would call apoptosis almost like acid pop, you know? <laughs> like if this is acid yes. rock, apoptosis yes. is acid pop. It absolutely is. It's that it's that washed out, it's that jam style, that really fluid. But I think the pop genre, at least modern, like the pop genre as it is in apoptosis or the alternative genre as it is in apoptosis is more suitable to that style than what I prefer rock to be. And so that's why there's the huge score difference, even though that's probably the most similar thing to it in terms of style. Boy, we're going through a rough stretch in the 30s. <laughs> hey, listen, we'll, you did this to me last time. This is why I had to demand an episode because you gave me a bunch of stuff I wasn't happy with. So, you know, we're getting close to that time again. My punch card's filling up. Yep. <laughs> we're getting close. This is another one where we were kind of starkly in contrast. Doesn't always happen, but when it does, it does. But that's going to do it for this week's episode of Spin It, the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. Uh, you can find us all over the internet, all over. Where at on the internet, all over? Oh, you want to know where? You can find <laughs> us on Twitter at SpinItPod, on Instagram, at SpinItPodOfficial, where we post fun album art with our logo hidden in it every week. And occasionally play Factor Spin. And we do that too. And you can find us on the web at www.spinitpod.com. Keep spinning. Yeah, you might as well. You know, what else are you going to do? Keep spinning. I think it's supposed to be a green donkey. <laughs> We're all the way back. I don't... I think donkey is kind of close to what it's supposed to be instead of a craft single i think it's actually meant to be like a yellow poncho looking thing and so i'm gonna go donkey donkey yeah yeah it's it's like a blanket like a poncho and i went the donkey man. so what if it's half donkey half sheep what if it's a shonky i was gonna go with deep 